Hello and welcome. This is a bi-monthly podcast that we have entitled, What's the World Coming To? In this podcast, we seek to uh, view current events through the lens of biblical prophecy. My name is Pastor Ken Ortiz. I have been the uh, teaching pastor for the last 38 years of Calvary Spokane, located in Spokane, Washington. One of the things we find in talking about biblical prophecy is it's something that spans the entire history of mankind. In fact, Jesus, speaking of his first advent, told his disciples in Luke 10, verse 24, he says, For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. In other words, he's saying this was a unique opportunity to be able to witness the fulfillment of thousands of years of previous prophecy, going all the way back to Adam and Eve when God promised Eve that a Savior would come from her womb. But now he tells us who are living in the aftermath of his death and resurrection, we live in the anticipation of his second advent or second coming, or at least we should be. And that's why Jesus said in Mark thirteen thirty three, he said, Take heed and keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man going away on a long journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigned to each of them his task and also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. It's notable that four times in that passage, Jesus used the word alert with the exhortation that we should be alert, keep alert, stay alert. The idea is that Christ can come at any time. Yet at the same time, Jesus exhorted that we can tell the times of the seasons or the signs of the seasons. That in other words, he's given us all sorts of indicators, precursors of what's going to come and indicate the coming of closing time. So that we find Christians for for millennia have been basically looking at the scriptures and trying to see what's going on in the world around them that might lead to the fulfillment of his second coming. It's interesting because in the very earliest writings of the church fathers, they seem to expect Christ to come within their lifetime. And I don't think that was a mistake. I think that's the attitude that God wants us to have. We call it the doctrine of imminence. That is that Christ can appear at any moment and any time. There's never been a series of events that have to precede it. And we also keep in mind that God is able to slow time down or speed it up as it pleases him. But the thing I think is important for us to realize in the current moment that we're in, that there has never been another time in human history where the things that are spoken of as taking place before the second coming of Christ, and particularly coming in his judgment to set up his kingdom on the earth, are really coming at us at a very fast pace. There are three things that I usually focus on, the idea of one world government, uh, one world economy, and one world religion. And what we do in this podcast, and also in a parallel series of teachings that you can find by going to the Calvary Spokane website, is I call them, What's the World Coming To? Uh, Basically, I outline a lot of the details of events that are taking place every day. We can see them in our news and catch them on the headlines. 
And there are things that really point to each of the fulfillment of each of these three unique things. The idea that the world can become globalized into one global government, that the economy is becoming globalized. It's just a very short step forward to going to a single cyber currency that will be used around the world with huge implications for the United States. And thirdly, the idea of one world religion. It's its hard to say exactly what that one's going to look like, but be sure that it's going to be anti-Christian in its initial emphasis, that the church has to be taken out of the way, either through persecution or through the rapture, which is what I personally am hoping for. But let me move on a little bit of talking about what I want to talk, cover today. Uh, do you feel like sometimes when you're reading the news or listening to broadcasts that you're taking crazy pills? I mean, some of the statements that we find in our headlines and in our newspapers, magazines, and online are, are almost incomprehensible to our minds because we have moved so quickly from a certain level of assumed standards or basic facts to now where we're in this free flow zone where just about anything can be said and people don't act surprised. I mean, if, for example, just the whole idea that we find that we are told now that it's it's not enough simply to wear a mask, but we need to think about doing a double masking or a maybe even triple masking. Um, and even while we're still left with the question, to what degree do masks protect, protect us from viral infections? But nonetheless, we get used to this kind of uh, exaggeration or compounding of, of requirements because that's the era which we're in. In fact, one headline I came across talking about a church that uh, has chosen to implement same-sex marriage blessings uh, in their church. Uh, there's an Ohio judge who ruled that biological sex can be changed on the birth certificate. <laughs> Basically ruled if you don't want to become a male, you just can have your birth certificate amended and put whatever chosen gender you want on it. And it's amazing because these people and their political correctness uh, or their wokeness have no idea the, the implications, the down, downhill ramifications of all these crazy ideas. In fact, a Harvard panel claimed that they're not all all who give birth are women. So that they basically, Harvard Medical School, says, school said in a, in a Twitter uh, account that women should be referred to as birthing people. And it, because they said not all who give birth are women. And <laughs> I mean, please show me anywhere where anybody but a woman can give birth to a child. But that, again, is the ridiculousness of it. That's why we find that a BBC educational film claims that there are over 100 genders. And I don't even know how you decide which one is you. There's a university professor who recently said that heterosexual sex, or heterosexuality, excuse me, causes societal problems. So if you're not gay or bi or trans or something else, then you cause problems in society and you need to be gotten rid of. Another article was a dad who had designed bikinis for young boys who want to live as girls. Or Twitter has just suspended an account uh, of the life site news because they referred to President Joe Biden's newly named Assistant Secretary of Health 
uh, Rachel Levine as being a man, because in fact, Rachel Levine is a biological man who has chosen to take on a transsexual appearance. So it's it's really kind of crazy, but this, of course, was Biden's effort to have the most diverse uh, cabinet that's ever been put in place, and he's certainly uh, winning that award. Um, we find even that the, the deputy attorney general uh, for civil rights, a very powerful position, has basically stated that melanin, that is the the uh, thing that causes your skin to come darker or lighter, that melanin endows blacks with greater mental, physical, and spiritual abilities. Uh, the Seattle Public School District is now teaching their students that they're guilty of spirit murder against black children in a new training program. And if you go to the White House's website and hit their contact form, do you know that you'll have to choose which pronoun best describes you, whether it's she or he, he or him, they or them, other, or prefer not to share? I mean, in other words, the whole world's gone crazy. And if you think that's bad, one of the things when you begin to read newspapers or hear news reports, the AP, which puts out guidelines for news writers and how they can, the terms that they can use or what are the latest terms, they make this amazing statement in their last release. They say not all people fall under one of two categories for sex or gender, according to leading medical organizations. So avoid references to both either or opposite sexes or gender as a way to encompass all people. And it's funny because they go through and detail certain things. You you can't call somebody a mistress of a man who's in a long-term relationship financially and otherwise. Now she can just be referred to as a companion or a lover. But that's more confusing because there are people that I love. There's somebody who I make love to on a regular basis. That's called my wife. She's not a mistress. And, and I have companions that aren't even women. They're just guys. So again, it, it doesn't help to clarify. It, it, it tends to obscure. You can't call someone a whore or a prostitute. You have to call them a sex worker. Illegal immigrants are only undocumented workers, even if they aren't working. Homeless people can no longer be called homeless. They have to be homeless people or people without housing or people without homes. And even the House the House of Representatives has issued new rules for the next legislative session that they can no longer use certain languages to describe people. And what kind of limits are there? You can't call somebody a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, first cousin, nephew, niece, husband, wife, father-in-law, mother-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, stepmother, stepfather, stepson, stepdaughter, stepbrother, stepsister, half-brother, half-sister, grandson, or granddaughter. You can no longer refer to them because those are all gender-specific. And so they have to come up with a language, which is which I find so fascinating because after this was passed, then Nancy Pelosi was seeking to push through the uh, impeachment of Trump, and she re- referred to him as him constantly violating the own rules, which she just pushed through. I mean, it's nonsense. Even in the opening prayer, we all, many of us heard about the uh, congressman who closed the prayer by saying, all men and all women. I mean, it's like <laughs> just craziness. 
Well, the BM leader, Yushra Kokali, Kokali, said that basically white people have genetic defects. But I think one of the most telling was all was that, that NPR on January 19th ran a story that said, as death rate accelerates U.S. records, 400, records 400,000 deaths. And this is just this ominous thing and goes on to speak about how we're heading into this dark, deep winter where we're going to see an unprecedented number of deaths because of COVID. And then two days later, right after the inauguration, they come up with another headline. Current deadly U.S. coronavirus surge has peaked, researchers say. So before the inauguration, the end of the world was coming. But after the inauguration, everything is getting better and better every day in every way. And if you follow the local news broadcast, you probably have seen how that they speak of the change of administration as very close. In fact, one of them actually used this term, referring to it as the second coming. Now, as we look at a lot of this stuff, we think about the role of big tech and how it's affecting us. And, and I think that we have to understand that big tech is far more complicit in things that are going on and the changes that are taking place than many of us realize because they're not just simply getting behind an agenda and supporting it. They are in many ways driving the agenda and their pursuit is for unlimited power. Uh, they want to control the flow of information around the world so that they can define what the terms of conversation are, and they can silence anybody who disagrees or challenges their point of view. And I would simply say that, in my opinion, the heads of these organizations like Twitter and Facebook and so forth and Google are nothing more than sociopathic megalomaniacs who want to rule the world. Uh, they don't see themselves as citizens, particularly of the United States, but rather as citizens of the world. And even more than that, they see themselves as global leaders of a new world order. And in fact, I think Patrick Wood, who's studied these issues for decades and I have a lot of respect for, has basically said that it's really not a battle between conservatives and liberal as we see it in the United States, but it's much broader. It's, it's globalism is the real issue. And, and he writes, he says, big tech censorship is not just an American problem. Journalists, broadcasters, and vocal citizens are being disappeared with equal effort all around the world. The following issues are universally being censored, he said. Criticism of COVID-19, vaccine criticism, globalism surrounding the Great Reset or the UN or the World Economic Forum. All of these, he said, are listed as conspiracy series or, or conspiracy theories, excuse me, even when they quote directly from the websites that they're referring to. And and populism, the idea that people like you and me can make a difference and vote for somebody like Trump, is being attacked as extremism. It's hateful. It's a threat to national security. It's interesting that Trump supporters are called Trump extremists. Uh, as if they are not extreme. Or we find that global warming is, you cannot criticize global warming or by its new moniker, climate change. Uh, when, you, when the science is questioned, academic scandals are revealed and corruption and manipulation of data are exposed, then big tech censors those things. And they have algorithms that do this. But here's also something to keep in mind. These algorithms are created by people to be issue specific. In other words, 
They look for certain words and phrases. I mean, it's likely that some of the things that I've said in this particular presentation will be censored. And they're not person-specific, and that's where we need to understand. They're not going after you specifically as a person, unless, of course, you served on the Trump cabinet. But rather, they are attacking or eliminating anything that goes contrary to the narrative that they want you to submit to. Uh, And the bottom line is very simply, they are deeply aligned with the globalization. So, and it doesn't limit itself to big tech, although they are a powerful force. But we find it's also beginning to happen with global global corporations. I mean, Walmart is all on board with this stuff because it just means a bigger market. The same way with Target and all of these large corporations, which have tremendously benefited financially from the shutdown of 90% of the small businesses in our country. Banks are in on it. The airlines are in on it. The big box stores, insurance companies, payment processors, internet services, even big pharma. You see, censorship is an outright promotion of a globalist agenda that is necessarily, and I say necessarily, destructive to the United States because the United States right now, as it stands, is a major barrier to the whole objective of globalism. And that's where we get introduced to a really interesting term, a new term to many of us, the Great Reset. You may be hearing a lot about it, but most people are wondering what in the world is the Great Reset? Well, first of all, you have to understand where it came from. It is the brainchild of those who are often referred to as the global elites. And even though the global elites have been aligned with a lot of different organizations like the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberger Group, the Club of Rome, the Trilateral Commission, so forth, uh, although they've been aligned with these kind of organizations, there is really kind of a centralizing around one particular organization, and that is the World Economic Forum. It's a, it's a meeting that is held every uh, year in Davos, Switzerland, and it includes the elite of the elite. Um, Not only do they have members from the UN and the International Monetary Fund and global corporations, high-tech leaders and important political leaders, but basically when we put them all together, they are 3,000 people who are selectively invited each year. They have to pay between 67,000 to attend and 600,000 if you want to become more deeply involved in some of the discussions, but each year they meet together with the ostensible goal of better coordinating their efforts to solve the world's problems. And it's interesting because they've had trouble getting their their message out or really getting it to take with the common people because they really don't have your and my interests at heart, even though they talk about that. The reality is that these are men who feel like they know how to run the world better than anybody else, especially better than governments. And so uh, they've been trying to put that through all sorts of issues like uh, climate change has been their last drum that they've beaten for a long time. But COVID-19 and the economic recovery that they're proposing to bring about uh, and, and to establish not equality of opportunity, but equity of results, basically so that everybody has the same income and access to all the same resources around the world, whether you're in in Sochi, Russia, or you're in uh, Bangladesh, or, or any other remote place on the planet. Everybody has equal access, equal income, and an equal lifestyle. 
Well, one of the things that's caused people to resist that is the fact that we understand there's only so many pieces of the pie to go around. And if you spread it out equally, everybody will have a one very, very small piece of pie. And it will mean, particularly for people in the Western world, and America and Canada in particular, that we will go through a major lifestyle shift. We will find that we will all be together. We will be, we'll have a sort of equality. We'll be equally poor altogether. So we find that as these other efforts to create a crisis have simply not been able to take hold, COVID-19 became the crisis that should not be wasted, if I were to quote not only Rahm Emanuel uh, of Clinton days, but also Winston Churchill, who first came up with this phrase that a, a, um, uh, a, a crisis shouldn't be wasted. Um, Basically, by stating the threat of the worst pandemic since, we might say, Noah's flood, uh, being hyped by uh, technocrats who have used outdated and faulty climate models to craft predictions of people dying by the multiple hundreds of millions. But with that threat, when that came in, overnight governments were advised to lock down their economies, to flatten the curve. And then, of course, it wasn't just to flatten the curve, but that it had to be there until there was a cure. And then when they found that there were cures, you had to have a vaccine. And, and, and then there are mutant strains that threaten the advocacy or the effectiveness of uh, the, the strain. So we need to have no more uh, vaccines and to knock it down. And it goes on and on because we find that there's no end to what the experts, people like Dr. Fauci, who, you know, changes with the weather, that there's more lockdowns, not only wearing masks, but wearing more masks, um, and basically, the fear of COVID, as it was delivered in the beginning, created such a panic, a hysteria, that it enabled government leaders to use incredible overreaches, even to the denial of our basic constitutional rights. Now, I would argue from a legal point of view, you can limit people's constitutional rights for a limited period of time in emergency, but not to the extent that they have been. And I tell you that we're not going to find this is going to go away until the next plan is to basically present climate change as being the new crisis and to shut down the economies again to lower the levels of CO2, even if those lowering is immeasurable or insignificant. But what's really interesting to me is when I begin to look in closer at the UN, the World Economic Forum, and the role that they play in all this, I discovered that they seem to have all the same operating phrase. Not only did they all talk about the Great Reset, but the purpose of the Great Reset, they said, was to build back better. Now, where have you heard that? Well, we know that that was Joe Biden's campaign slogan. But he didn't create it. It's taken from the UN. It's taken from the World Economic Forum in particular. And it's being used all around the world. This is something I'm going to touch on in my weekend message where I talk about this same topic in depth. Well, admittedly, any time a politician begins with the word great, it is often to be taken as a negative, not a positive. I mean, World War I was the Great War, and uh, it was followed by an even greater war 20 years ago. And then, of course, in between that was the Great Depression. And we've had, in the last year, the Great Disruption. We've had a Great Recession, and now we have the Great Reset. None of those things have ever turned out well, and I don't expect that the Great Reset uh, reset will, will turn out well either. 
But you have to understand what the objective of the Great Recess is. It's to really, first and foremost, bring an end to the U.S. economic, military, and diplomatic hegemony and creating a new global hegemony overseen by 10 key nations. This is the World Economic Forum's own words that basically they predict by 2030, the U.S. will no longer be the lead hegemonic power in the world, but it'll be just one of a member of 10 or so leading nations, which is interesting because that's exactly what the book of Revelation tells us is going to be the place, going to take place in the last times. But the idea is that they're going to come together and create a new global constitution that will supersede all national constitutions and all uh, national laws, and they will come under this whole new covering, this new umbrella. And what they're going to work towards is economic equity, which will require the reallocation of assets and resources to all people equitably and will imply the end of private property. The World Economic Forum actually says this, that there will be an end of private property, that everything you need, you can rent. So if you have a car, a bike, and so forth, the idea, well, especially with electric cars, I just call it up, they send one to my door, I get it, it takes me where I want, and I only pay for the time that I use it, I don't have that overall expense. And also, I can't necessarily drive it wherever I want, when I want, and how I want. But nonetheless, this becomes the key that this global governance by key nation states, and I can just off the top of my head guess who those 10 nations would be if that was formed today. It would be the U.S., it would be China, Russia, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Japan, India, Canada, and either the U.N. or E.U., but I think probably most likely the U.N., if one were looking for an umbrella term, we might call this whole new thing the new, the Green New Deal. Because this is exactly what the Green New Deal is. It's taking your green and giving it to a whole new set of people so they can control every aspect of your life. Now, the linchpin of all this is going to be uh, require a global system of, of monetary uh, control. And that's something we're going to find that's going to be taking place. But I don't want to spend a lot of time getting into that to it here because I'm going to run out of time and I'll save that for probably our next session. But one of the questions that people often have is, well, how in the world are they going to convince people like me and you to go along with this? And the answer is by using brainwash techniques on a mass level. Uh, there are about eight techniques that are used commonly to brainwash people. And, and here's what they are. Number one is fear. They create something that's so frightening that people will surrender their civil liberties and their personal rights. And that's exactly what happened with COVID-19. I find still people are so paralyzed by the idea that they're going to catch this virus and it's going to kill them, even though they have a 99% chance that if they acquire it, it won't. But nonetheless, they're terrified and they act as if if they have any human contact, they will die. The second thing they create is dependency. You become increasingly dependent upon leaders. I mean, when you think about in many of our states, our governors have been operating completely without accountability. They've been making rules and decisions, mandates, closures, lockdowns, with no legal authorization to do it other than the fact that they can and nobody is standing up against them to stop them. Trump attempted to do so, and you can see what they did as a consequence. The third thing is if you want to brainwash somebody, you make them, you isolate them, you cut them off. And I think that not only does that apply to the stay-at-home orders or the lockdowns and the curfews, but more, even more so the idea of wearing masks. Have you noticed how your relational dynamics have changed when you go to the store, when you have a face mask on? 
suddenly people become more and more anonymous. Now, if you're a Baptist and you wanted to buy liquor, this is great. You can go to the liquor store and nobody recognizes who you are. But if you want to interact with people, it's really become an increasingly barrier. So what happens? People become even more isolated by relying upon social media, which has its own uh, dynamic we'll get to in a minute. The fourth thing they use is just fatigue. They wear people down emotionally. And I find that increasingly people are just exhausted. They're just tired. They, they've lost their fight. I see people, their <laughs> smiles are missing. Um, but they just wear you down. The fifth thing they use is self-criticism. They get you to begin looking at yourself and saying, oh, because you're not wearing a mask, you don't love other people and you're going to be responsible for causing them to die. And we find ourselves beginning to criticize ourselves. I'm too greedy. I'm too selfish. I have too much. I'm too wealthy. I'm too prosperous. I'm too blessed. And the idea is you begin to feel guilty about being you. And that's increasingly. How about the idea of you're repenting of your whiteness? What a nonsensical statement can that be? And yet we find that increasingly people are repenting of their white privilege. And I think, how ironic, most of the very poor people in this world are white people, and they don't consider themselves privileged. The sixth thing they find is there's a lot of finger-pointing. That's where we get into the virtue signaling. And you find it when people are banned from social media, uh, when they're name-called and cyber-bullied, and basically people getting fired from their jobs because they went to a Trump rally. This kind of stuff is happening, and it's effective because it makes people, as the fingers are pointing, they want to get out of the line of sight. They want to become anonymous. They want to hide in the background. And so what it does is it discourages people from speaking out. You're afraid to be seen. And then seventh, and this is a strange word, it's called Beatrice Abuse. A barrister is a lawyer, and barrister's abuse means that if you if they don't like what you're doing, they'll just start suing you. We've seen this happen with President Trump through his four years in office. He's been facing one indictment and one suit after another, and it'll only heighten as he leaves office. But the idea is you occupy people with so much stuff that they as so many legal challenges that they just want to get out from under. And think about how many bad things have come to pass because people just were tired and didn't have the resources or energy and couldn't afford to hire the lawyers to fight them. It's a very effective tool, and they basically want to reduce people who are against them to nothing, even if it's keeping them from being able to have a job. Remember, that's a rule that or a a promotion that's being put out there is that anybody who worked with a Trump Trump, uh, administration should be refused uh, uh, positions in schools and industry. They should be basically ostracized. And then the eighth thing is what we call thought-terminating cliches. In other words, things like global warming or climate change, uh, the worst pandemic in 100 years, or existential threats, or science deniers, or Trump extremists. These are terms, you know, or even calling people Nazis. That's a favorite one. That you just simply throw this cliche on somebody, you give them this name, and that's leads people into thinking about that person in a certain way. But it doesn't really deal with the real issues. And I find that when I am talking to some of these individuals, I say, well, what exactly do you mean by that? And they can't really answer the question because it isn't something they've thought through. It's just a phrase that they've used, you know, uh, things like uh, banning the police, you know, (laughs) defunding the police. 
And cities that have done that have found out that that's not a very good idea, and they've tried to quietly backtrack. But the simple point is that whole movements become buoyed by these phrases that are stupid and not thought through, and people just buy into them. Well, I see that I've uh, taken as much time as I dare take. Uh, I would encourage you to tune in this this Sunday, or it'll be available posted on YouTube, where I get to address the same topic in a little more de- detail and uh, and cover it, hopefully, more fully and show how it relates directly to biblical prophecies. But having said that, I appreciate that you've taken the time to listen to this. I hope this will get your thought processes going. And I look forward in a couple of weeks to coming back and continuing to have this conversation. God bless you and go in His grace. <music>